Feminist Buzzkills. I'm Liz Winstead, and I'm joined by my co-host, Moji Alabodiel. And together, we are the Taylor Swift and Beyonce of abortion podcast hosts. Oh, my God, Liz, are we fighting? No, neither are they. Oh, okay. <laughs> that fake fight that people are creating about Taylor Swift and Beyonce. Like, I couldn't have cared less about anything. But, like, to manufacture something I couldn't care less about is just next level. <laughs> <laughs> Well, today we are talking with the law dork himself, Chris Geidner, about the Supreme Court taking up the Mifford-Pristone case this week. The stakes are high and this could possibly curtail access to medication abortion nationwide. And Wonder Woman herself is here, Linda Carter. What? Linda is a righteous activist and joins us to talk about Wonder Woman, abortion rights, and her new single. And this fall, we lost a reproductive rights pioneer and former president of National Institute for Reproductive Health, Andrea Miller. Liz and I celebrate her life and work with groundbreaking reproductive rights attorney, Catherine Colbert, and political strategist and interim president of NIRH, Aisha Mills. It's a trio of Wonder Women. And a wonderful man. Before we get to the wonder people, uh, we get to talk about some things that could give you the runs. Here's Molly to drop a steaming pile of this week's news on you. Thanks so much, friends. Welcome back to your steaming news dump. This one is going to leave a skid mark on your soul. So here are some big stories you probably missed as we careen into the biggest story of the week. So we're going to start off light with the news that Missouri lawmakers have introduced a bill that allows them to charge you with murder for getting an abortion. Because fertilized eggs are people. USA! 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 Number one! (laughs) So this bill could also charge you with murder for using Plan B or an IUD because they think these forms of birth control are also abortion, therefore are murder weapons. I've personally never heard of someone holding up a bodega with Morena, but that's just me. I'd love to see it. (laughs) And, you know, while Missouri is busy inventing harm, Illinois is taking its new moon energy in another direction and giving harm a pass. Yep. In the land of Lincoln, the attorney general completely caved to anti-abortion extremists and announced he's going to stop enforcing the state's brand new dope-ass law that made it illegal for fake clinics to lie to people. So bad. Like, it was like two seconds ago. They just passed it. And when they did pass it, we were so stoked that these religiously run theater camps masquerading as real abortion clinics were finally going to be held accountable and they could no longer just, you know, throw on a lab coat and play doctor without letting people know that this is just Christian cosplay. So we can't even whisper a regulation near these unlicensed forced birth factories. But if a pregnant person sneezes and pees a little, lock them up. USA! 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 We're (laughs) killing it, you guys. Okay, but um, actually USA, USA for a second. Um, Yeah, good news. Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan has repealed the state's law that required you to purchase extra insurance if you wanted coverage for abortion. Now, you may have heard it referred to as rape insurance because that's what it was. Michigan was really out there asking you to simply assess the likelihood of a future sex crime occurring to you and deciding whether rape insurance is for you. Like a bad neighbor, state harm is there. Go, Gretch. Go. 
Go Gretch. Go Gretch. USA. You, uh, I meant it that time. <laughs> and uh, finally, the Texas woman who was denied an abortion. This one, you guys, I just got to talk out with you. It's so heinous. It's so heinous. The, the only good thing about this story is that mainstream media finally started covering for real the horrors of this. But like, it's just shocking how hard these Ken Paxton and the Supreme Court just doubled down on this person dying, possibly. The only good thing about this, to reiterate what you said, is that finally it is laid out bare for everyone that exceptions to abortion bans are bullshit. <laughs> because that's really what it is. Texas has been saying, but we have an exception. And when the exception is this person might lose their fertility, might lose their life, and has a non-viable fetus, the attorney general said, that's not enough. The cruelty is the point, and this is putting that on blast. You know, I was just thinking, I was like, you know how they say 20 weeks? They're like, oh, 20 weeks, a uh, baby can feel pain. I'm like, so you're gonna make it continue to grow so that it can be birthed into the world and have even more pain. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, just- yeah. pro-life. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just I I hope that people are truly sickened and I hope that they actually decide to take action in seeing that you can be a person walking the earth. You are not exempt from a pregnancy going haywire because you know what pregnancies go haywire. There's a million different things that can go wrong in a pregnancy and no one is exempt from them. And so you should be Uh, standing and shouting from the rooftops with your whole self because all of these people are you. Just fucking full stop. Molly, thank you so much. Thanks, Molly. Also, I forgot to mention that the biggest news story of the week broke and I will leave you to casually discuss the fate of abortion that is once again in the hands of the Supreme Court. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Thanks, Molly. (laughs) Uh, You know how she pieced out on that one. So um, smart lady. You know, normally in a world that is just only uh, 80% insane. That Texas story of a woman being denied care would have been the top story, but no, the Supreme Court this week decided it is going to take up the abortion pill case, the case where a bunch of quack-ass fake pro-life doctors and a dentist decided they were going to do their damnedest to create a consortium and then a lawsuit that disparaged the abortion pill mifepristone, and they found a bunch of judges that let them plead their crackpot case and it wove its way through the courts and now guess what the supreme court has decided we will finally hear this case yeah we've only been waiting like months for the supreme court since we got the decision in august but joining us is a lawyer a journalist a former scotus correspondent for buzzfeed news you may know him from law dork his newsletter that breaks down the goings-on of the supreme court for the rest of us to understand please welcome to help us understand this Chris Geidner. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hello. Oh, my God, Chris. We are so glad you are available. (laughs) So as we have been torturously and laboriously talking about this case ad nauseum, we knew the Supreme Court was going to take it. They finally took it. So talk to me about why did they take it and what are they going to be looking for? Like, What should we be worried about, too? Yeah. Yeah, that that's kind of that's life in 2023. <laughs> that e- even the good things have sort of a, a 
it, it, it's the opposite of a silver lining. <laughs> Even the good things have a dark lining. This one has a uterine lining. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> the thing is, the Fifth Circuit's ruling, if the Supreme Court didn't take this case, the Fifth Circuit's ruling would stand. And under the Fifth Circuit's ruling, all of the decisions since 2016, easing access to Mifepristone would be pulled back. And so the change in how late in a pregnancy you can prescribe mifepristone would be gone. The change in how many appointments you need would be gone. Most importantly, the change to getting rid of the in-person dispensing requirement would have been back on the books. And so there are a few other small things, but those are the three big changes since 2016. And if the court hadn't granted the case under the Fifth Circuit's ruling, all of those would have been back to the 2015 standards. And I just want to just tell folks that that what ostensibly is, is a seven week abortion ban when yeah. it comes to medication abortion, just so everybody can understand that with in person. And it was bad enough when we had more clinics open, but now without any clinics. And if you can't get it through the mail, it would be a federal seven week abortion ban when it came to medication abortion. I mean, and that's why both DOJ and Danko had gone to uh, the Supreme Court and said, please take this case. The, The most interesting thing was the fact that Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. That's what I call it, too. <laughs> or we like to call them Aaron Holly's OnlyFans members. Oh, oh, I'm not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) What they did was they filed uh, what they called a conditional cross petition. uh, And they said, if the Supreme Court grants the DOJ or Danko petition, then we want you to grant cert on this underlying question about the 2000 approval of Mifepristone. And so they were asking for the justices to take a full case over whether Mifepristone should be able to be banned. And the interesting thing that the Supreme Court did this week was granted the DOJ and Denko petitions, and they denied the request from the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. That is good news. That That is good news. I mean, again, Within this dark timeline, that is the best case scenario. The court said, we don't even want to have that on the table as something we're debating when we hear this case. We want to talk about what we're going to be talking about is really two things, whether the parties have standing. So whether this alliance has standing. Now, you might remember it's sort of weird What they're claiming is standing, they have sort of this like family circus series of events that they're saying if all of these things, thank you, Liz, you're old enough that you you got that joke, (laughs) that that if like these eight things happen, then we could be harmed. And both Matt Kaczmarek and the Fifth Circuit said, yeah, that's standing. But before you go on, I just want to say and reiterate that if somebody in this climate, it really any climate, but in this particular climate, is seeking abortion care through pills or is having something that happens after they take the pills where they need to seek medical care, they are not going to go to anti-abortion doctors and a dentist in Texas who is part of this suit. 
in Texas for help because they will turn them into the authorities. It's wild to me. It's a case that was brought for the reason they brought it. And like, and they brought it to the judge. They brought it to because they knew he was likely to be sympathetic. And this is kind of great roots because if I remember correctly with Dobbs, they originally went to the Supreme Court looking at like a 14 week ban. And then once the Supreme Court took it, they were like, let's consider Roe. Like, let's be honest, it wasn't once the Supreme Court took it. It was once Justice Ginsburg died. Yes. Right. <laughs> like it was once Justice Ginsburg died and was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. Then they said, actually, let's talk about Roe. So, Chris, in them denying the uh, Hippocratic Dr consortium yeah their wish to just say the fda botched it and this pill should be taken off the market is this a signal to us that this supreme court is likely going to say we're gonna roll it back to pre-2016 and you're gonna have to start over or should i not make that assumption no we shouldn't make that assumption i i think what the assumption that we should make is that for for good or bad reasons, like not even bad, bad reasons, but like for good reasons or for their own political reasons, they do not want the 2000 approval of Mifepristone even on the table. Now, that might be because they just see it as so politically toxic that they want to be clear as we go through this debate over the next six months that that's not on the table. Or it could just be that, like, they think it's so outside the realm of possibility that none of the justices want to take that up. But I I think what we're left with and, and what your question's getting at is we're left with two real issues. This this standing question of whether or not they can even be in court. And it is highly possible that the court could decide it on that question or the issue of whether the 2016 and 2021 changes were done appropriate. Now, like, I think that even in this environment and from this court, we're on pretty safe grounds on that because, like, this is the reason why, if you remember back at at the district court and even at the Fifth Circuit, all of these amicus briefs that were coming in, like the weird situation where like big business and pharma was on the same side as like Planned Parenthood and FDA, like they were all on the same side because like this would really upend if you're going to say that you can go to court and on this thin of a record overturn an FDA decision, you're really going to make life very difficult for pharma and pharma don't like that. And And also they love pharma. They loves them Mm -hmm. some pharma. It it is a case that if they, I mean, one, they're probably going to get rid of it on standing because this is just an absurd standing argument, but they might also say like, while we've got it here, we're, we're going to roll on this APA challenge, this FDA challenge, because it also, is far outside the realm of the types of challenges to agency action that we expect. Now, if they only decided on standing, the problem is that then the issues about the 2016 and 2021 challenges technically haven't been resolved. And so that will take us back to the last time we talked and that state AGs trying to get in the case, and they could still try to go forward with the case. 
So they would have to find other people withstanding to try yeah. to challenge the 2016 rulings. Which would be like all the abortion rulings where essentially the justices were saying, this isn't the case, keep trying. The AGs are the Missouri and Idaho and Idaho. Kansas AGs. Mm-hmm. Like, they're probably going to file an amicus brief in the Supreme Court in this case. Um, so they're going to be still putting their arguments forward. And so I I think that there's a, a chance that, and I think I'm probably in the minority here, even among, like, people who generally I agree with on Supreme Court things. I think that there's a chance that they resolve both of these issues this term because they they do think that like sort of both of these grounds are are dangerous, honestly, outside of the abortion context. It's not because they've all of a sudden become pro-abortion. It's because, as you said, <laughs> it's an anti-business decision, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> but this isn't going to be the end of it. There's always a but wait, there's more. So, Chris, what is the but wait, there's more? There is one like element that like no matter what happens in this case, there is still like this issue that it, it wouldn't resolve what a bad administration could do. Even if they toss it on standing and resolve the APA thing and say this is allowed, the 2016 and 21 rules stand, like that doesn't mean that a Republican administration couldn't come in and try to change it. In the, within their own HHS, they could put it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like they could promulgate new rules and say, actually, we think that the mail order rules aren't appropriate. They could say that we don't think that Comstock has been abrogated and we we think that any mailing is, is still illegal. So we're going to roll back that rule anyway. You know, it's like we have been doing with Title 10 funding for clinics. It's the same thing. Whatever HHS is in there, you know, we did a whole podcast just about how much power unelected and appointed people have when it comes to your health care. And it's astounding. So I do think it's it's just important that like while I think this case is going to turn out well, it's it's certainly not like a case that ultimately resolves the issue. The bad ruling in this case would have been really awful and, and still could be really awful. But like the good ruling is really just a ruling that keeps the status quo. Right. Yeah. It doesn't advance anything or give us any additional rights. Right. Chris, this has been so helpful and you actually brought hope. I did not expect that. So I feel very excited about that. (laughs) As you know, we're always going to be begging and talking to you to come back. But thank you for letting us know what to look for, what is at stake and what they're going to be looking at. You are such a genius. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks. You can follow Chris everywhere at Chris Geidner and at Law Dork News on Twitter. I'm saying Twitter, not the other thing. IG and Blue Sky. And please, please, please subscribe to his Law Dork Substack for some of the best legal and SCOTUS reporting out there. We got to support our indie journalist friends. Twitter is the only dead man I'm using these days. <laughs> I feel like that's fair. I'm going to just, I love calling it. It's dead name. That's amazing. <laughs> As always, info on the Miffy case and all this week's news stories will be in the show notes. And you can find the best, most up-to-the-minute resources on accessing abortion care and funding for your care on our website, aafront.org. Our Charlie chatbot on the bottom right 
will walk anyone anywhere in the country through their options and resources for abortion. And now, you know, it is in the wake of the Supreme Court taking this Mifepristone case. I'm glad that today is the day that we are paying tribute to Andrea Miller. She is a policy person who would have been so excited and probably would have been our guest today on this show uh, as we found out the Supreme Court took this case. If you've been listening to the pod, you'll know uh, that we mentioned about a month and a half ago that Andrea Miller, who is a pioneer of reproductive rights and, and justice, died in late October. And we at AAF and Moji and I and the whole Feminist Buzzkills team wanted to honor her life and her work because a lot of people don't know how instrumental this person was at working tirelessly, fighting for reproductive freedom. Andrea started at the ACLU, helped found the Center for Reproductive Rights, and for the last decade plus was the executive director of the National Institute for Reproductive Health, which is an organization that helps craft state and local policies that further abortion access. She spearheaded so many wins that directly affect us all, like over-the-counter Plan B, no copay contraception in Massachusetts, and was instrumental in helping craft the New York Reproductive Health Act that helped invalidate the anti-abortion laws in the New York State Criminal Code. She was working with elected officials on a bill to enshrine abortion in the New York Constitution when she unexpectedly died in October. We're all still reeling from the loss and wanted to take this time to celebrate a woman who was quite literally a hero and whose joy, brilliance, adventurousness, and generosity will be missed. That's right. And on a personal note, Andrea was part of the Minnesota mafia of abortion badasses, including Amy Hegstrom Miller, including so many people who have come forward and did this work. She was a friend. She was one of the very first boosters and financial supporters of Lady Parts Justice League, which has become Abortion Access Front. And she saw possibility and supported all of it. She understood community and she was a dear friend and somebody who has made life better and touched the lives of everyone who knew her and didn't. We wanted to celebrate Andrea with those who knew her best. And we have some wonderful guests, a whole slew of Wonder Women, starting with a superstar attorney who was CEO of People for the American Way, and along with Andrea and other badass lawyers, was co-founder of the Center for Reproductive Rights. It was Catherine and Andrea who crafted the strategy for the landmark Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Please welcome to share so much about the monumental work she and Andrea have accomplished, Catherine Colbert. Hi. Hey, Catherine. Hey, thank you for joining us. Hi, nice to be here. So you met Andrea when she came on as your assistant at the ACLU. Can you talk about how you first met Andrea and how that relationship grew from legal assistant to helping craft the strategy for the landmark Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey? Sure. So I met Andrea when I became a consultant to the ACLU in 1988. She was about 21 years old. I uh, had been working uh, as an assistant to Rachel Pine, another lawyer in the office. When I came on, I was working out of Philadelphia, but needed somebody in New York who would help me. And uh, Andrea became my new assistant uh, almost immediately. I think that what I remember most strikingly about that time is that Andrea and I would be on the telephone about 18 or 19 times a day. I mean, it was just kind of endless direct dial. There was just a button on each of our phones that would go directly to each other. So that when I was out of the office, I was talking to her 
as much or more than I was when I was actually in the office. <laughs> this was the days before the internet, before email, before fax machines. I mean, was it before machines. cell phones too? Uh, it's definitely before cell phones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like car phones. <laughs> yeah, but there were, there were no cell phones that we each had. It was a time when technology was very different. And so communication by telephone was the, the most important way of communicating both between Andrea and I and all of the affiliates of the ACLU who I talk with pretty regularly. I think the thing I, I remember the most about Andrea is that she had this uncanny ability to kind of finish my sentences or get to something I needed before I could finish asking for what I needed. We used to talk to each other about having the second half of my brain. That's how she was around a whole range of people who were important to the movement. And I think uh, at the time, well, this was 1988, uh, within about six months after my joining the ACLU, the Webster case went to the Supreme Court. That was the first time Will you explain what that is? So that was a case out of Missouri, and that was the first time we thought that the court had enough votes to overturn Roe versus Wade. And what were they challenging in Webster? Oh, let me think here. So it was a statute out of Missouri. It had a requirement that uh, the government couldn't talk about abortion or fund abortion. It had a hospitalization requirement. It was a number of restrictions on abortion. And while we had thought that the court was going to overturn Roe, in Webster, they didn't do that. Uh, what Justice O'Connor did is she said, I think these particular provisions are constitutional, but we don't need to reach the question of whether Roe versus Wade is still the law of the land. But at the time, I was organizing the amicus briefs for Webster. Uh, we, uh, with Andrea's assistance, went out to hundreds of organizations across the country who filed amicus briefs. Uh, in defense of Roe. And it was a really large uh, outpouring of support. There was a national march with, I think it was half a million people uh, in D.C. at the time, which was, would have been the largest women's march at that moment. It was a time of national turmoil, and everyone thought Roe was going to go down. It didn't. But we came very close. And you know the phrase that Roe versus Wade is hanging by a thread? That comes from the oral argument and the uh, opinion in Webster. So then, well, about three years later, following the uh, appointment of Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Supreme Court, it was really clear that there was no hope that we had five votes to preserve Roe versus Wade. And so once again, we were going to the court thinking that Roe was going to be overruled. And this was in the Casey case? This was in the Casey case, yes. So could you explain to our listeners just briefly, because I think so often we talk about Roe and and the, the Casey case in 1992 is the reason we have all these shit laws and states can do all this terrible stuff. And I and I'm hoping that you can explain a little bit about what Casey was and um, what you were arguing against. Exactly. So Casey was a Pennsylvania uh, statute. It required a 24 hour waiting period. It required doctors to provide a litany of information that was intended to discourage abortion. There was a parental consent requirement. There was a husband notification requirement. Again, oh, a, wow. a series of restrictions that were intended to uh, limit the availability of abortion. Now, in 1986, you know, just five or six years before this, I had argued a case in the Supreme Court called Thornburg versus American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And that was the last 
clear reaffirmation of Roe. We won that case by a 5-4 vote. And so when Casey came back to the court, it was almost identical to the case in 1986. And so our position was, if the standards of Roe, that is what was known to lawyers as strict scrutiny, were applicable, then we would win automatically. Uh, But if the court changed the standards, that is, gave states greater ability to restrict abortion, then we might lose in uh, these particular provisions. Well, you credit Andrea with helping you craft how to navigate that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So let's remember, we thought we were going to lose. Right. So the entire strategy was built on the notion that if we lost, we needed to win the presidential race the following November so that we would have Congress and the presidency enough votes to pass a statute that protected Roe. Um, so our strategy was built on asking one question. And this was very radical at the time. That question was, is Roe versus Wade still the law of the land? We did that in a petition for certiorari, which is asking the court to take the case. We asked one question. Everybody thought we were crazy because, of course, lawyers don't just ask a public relations question when they go to the Supreme Court. <laughs> While Andrea didn't come up with that strategy, I actually think Janet Benchop was the one who said, let's just ask one question. Um, Andrea helped me figure out what that one question was, and more importantly, helped me make sure that an average person uh, who didn't understand all the legal ease could understand what was at stake in the case. And so we launched beginning with that petition for certiorari, a national campaign with all of the leaders of pro-choice organizations who essentially spent the next six months doing nothing but going on media saying, what's at stake in this case is whether Roe versus Wade remains the law of the land. Uh, And the media wanted to portray it as, well, what's at stake in this case is a 24-hour waiting period and a bunch of restrictions in Pennsylvania. Right, which sounds a lot more reasonable than um, is Roe v. Wade the law of the land. That's right. And so we wanted to keep bringing it back to that central question because we knew if we lost, we would need people to understand what we lost uh, when uh, the election came around in November. And, you know, Andrea was just great at establishing relationships with members of the media. She, by the time we finished this campaign, she knew everybody on the Supreme Court press corps, uh, was friendly with all of them, established strong relationships. They trusted her to tell them what our position was and to arrange times for me to talk with them. And I think what she demonstrated was not only an ability to speak English in a way that people understood, but also uh, to coordinate a very complicated uh, media strategy that may or may not work going forward. And we were very happy uh, with the end result. Well, I also think, too, that I know Andrea's superpower at making sure that the message stays on message. So I can imagine, and and I'm going to throw this to you to see if I'm right, that if the media started to veer into that, it's about 24 hours, Andrea was in there saying like, no, it's actually about this and helping the reframe happen. I mean, that's just so crucial as we, like, as you're speaking right now, Catherine, it so much feels like we got into a time machine and no time has passed at all because as we sit here, um, the Supreme Court has just taken a case that is full of complications. And Andrea is going to be so sorely missed to help America uh, understand and navigate again what is at stake 
for legal abortion. It's no longer Roe. It's legal right. abortion. Exactly. And, you know, this week we had the case in Texas, which demonstrated the horrific nature of these bans that are now permitted under uh, the Dobbs decision. This week we had the Supreme Court say they're going to look at FDA uh, regulations that uh, permit or don't permit the ability for doctors to prescribe mifepristone, an abortion drug, over the telephone or or send the drugs through the mail. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are happening every single day that affect this issue that are complicated legal questions. You know, my view, and I think Andrea's view later on in her role at uh, the National Institute of Reproductive Health is we have to stop hitting our heads against these marble staircases. We have to stop depending on the courts all of the time. And while it's important for the courts to understand what's going on, it's more important for all of us who want to preserve this issue to be active in the politics of the issue, to to throw those guys out in Texas who are passing these horrific laws, to make sure the attorney general of Texas doesn't return to office, to make sure that we can flip state legislatures, because that is the only way that we will win back these rights going forward. I think that's right. And um, I'm excited to unpack that in a minute. But before we get there, I want to talk about you started the Casey case when you were consulting at the ACLU. I just want to be clear. Did you finish it there or did you finish it when you peeled off to start what we now know as the Center for Reproductive Rights? It was half and half. So okay. uh, Janet and I and a variety of other people at the ACLU had agreed to start the Center for Reproductive Rights, but my bottom line was I couldn't do it before the oral argument in Casey. So we decided that we would hold the the oral argument was the last oral argument of the term, the end of April, and we decided that we would leave in June before it was likely that the case would be decided. And so that was you and Janet Beneshoof and Andrea. Correct? Yeah. Well, and a variety of there were other lawyers that were involved as well who were at the Reproductive Freedom Project. I think there was uh, eight or 10 of us who went together uh, to create the center. Janet was the critical role here. It was uh, her office at the ACLU. She was the director. Uh, it was her idea to to start the center. I and Andrea and a variety of other people really were part of that initial uh, creation of the center. And I think the part that Andrea did is that she became the first communications director of the new center. So she went from being my assistant, a big loss for me personally, to working for me as the head of communications. And she began to design all of the communications that the center did in those early years. And let me just say there was, I was trying to remember the other day just how many significant events occurred during that time frame. I was at the center until 1998. So it was 10 years that we worked together. And during that decade, we not only had Casey uh, go to the Supreme Court, we had uh, the whole fight over partial birth abortion. We had fights uh, in states, probably uh, a variety of bans in states uh, that had been passed, Louisiana, Utah, Guam. We had the abortion pill being brought in by a woman from France and being her being detained at Kennedy Airport. So we had that effort. We had uh, you know women who were unable to get procedures uh, who needed them. Very similar to situations like went on in Texas this week. 
Uh, so over and over and over again, we had crises and uh, very important national issues come to the fore. And Andrea was able to navigate the communications on all of that, made us all sound really great uh, as we were spokespeople for the center. Um, and I think um, we're very proud of the work that you did there. Amazing. It's really funny how it, we are definitely time traveling. And I just want to continue this conversation, but I want to just add a little more to it. So joining us now is Aisha Mills, a very close friend and colleague of Andrea. Aisha led the marriage equality campaign to victory in Washington, D.C., crafted federal policy during the Obama administration, helped elect hundreds of people of color, LGBTQ plus people and women across the United States, and recently ran for Congress in New York's Hudson Valley. That's right. But Aisha's here today because she was an NIRH Action Fund board member who in this very difficult time has stepped up to serve as the interim president of NIRH and has so much wisdom to offer on the importance of the work of Andrea and NIRH. Hi, Aisha. Hey, thank you all for having me. This is really special to get to memorialize Andrea uh, and chat with you all about her. Oh, I, I so agree. And I couldn't think of two better people to talk about, especially on a week where uh, another landmark Supreme Court case has landed in our lap. And it's something you're going to have to deal with it, Aisha, and something that, you know, I wish Andrea was here also to deal with. So like we, we asked Kitty at first, how did you come to know Andrea? You know, I met Andrea, oh, maybe five, six years ago. She started, um, we, we started talking about some of the lessons of the LGBTQ rights movement and how we won marriage equality and what could be applied to women's rights, period, and justice, and obviously abortion, the abortion fight, abortion access, um, reproductive health more broadly. What could we learn just in terms of movement strategies? And I'll never forget the dinner where I was teaching at Harvard and she was back in, in Cambridge doing something. And she was like, come, let's go to dinner. And we had dinner and we just started talking about all that she was looking to achieve with NIRH and wanting to have partners in the work on her board. Um, to be able to take the board and take the organization um, into the future. And the, the thing I remember about that dinner is that I found that Andrea had such a sense of the big picture and all that was happening in the world and where we needed to be, who was being left behind, who who wasn't able to get abortions, right? Because of the way that the, you know, the movement had won, we still hadn't fully won at that time. And she had big vision but knew that there was so many different machinations um, to how we needed to get there. And what I was most just kind of boiled over by having come from a national framework. I mean, I was very much a Washington policy thinker at the time uh, that she and I were having this conversation. And she started to talk to me about the deep partnership work that she was um she had started at NIRH and that at that point had so many monumental successes and the fact that she was really connected to the fact that all politics are local mm -hmm. that she was very committed to supporting activists on the ground to be able to change the outcomes of their lives and influence the state of political affairs at home really excited me um and her big vision so i joined the board 
So I ended up joining uh, the board. It's been over four years now and continued to just be inspired by her as a leader in my own work. And it's such a loss for us all, for all of our movements that that we don't have her as a visionary continuing to guide us. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you all what has been really remarkable in just the few short weeks that I have been invited to step into her shoes and just continue to to shepherd her organization. I am just continually in awe at how, as a visionary, she set us up for where we need to go. I mean, she literally has laid a path for us um, organizationally as a movement. Um, And so that everybody, you know, we're not leaving anybody behind in terms of abortion access. And it really is phenomenal. Her her legacy will certainly uh, continue to power on. Well, and I want to ask you, Kitty, because I think, Aisha, you're so right that all politics are local. And Kitty, y'all working on state laws, understanding that profoundly, how much of your work with Andrea in, you know, fighting these bans locally played a big role in her being able to develop that big comprehensive picture. Well, I think it was it was critical. I mean, when I started the ACLU, Janet, after Webster went to the court, Janet said, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to work in the states uh, because I came from Pennsylvania, which at the time was one of the most restrictive states. And we needed uh, to focus on the states. And everybody in D.C. only wants to focus on Congress. But these laws weren't being passed by Congress. They were being passed by the state legislatures. And so between 1989 and 92, those three years before we left for the center, when I was at the ACLU, I was in 44 states fighting restrictions on abortion. Uh, And Andrea helped me get to all of those places, helped me uh, round up the people we needed to talk to when I got there, uh, helped me craft the messages and make sure that uh, we had people on the ground who really understood that you can defeat these bills if you are organized and you have uh, some strengths. Uh, but most importantly, you needed the votes. And that's when we all learned that politics is queen here. Uh, it's the only important thing. This issue isn't going to be won in the courts. It's got to be won at the state legislative level in Congress, maybe with the presidency, but most importantly, at the state legislative level. Because let, let's just think about this. If Texas, you know, had a majority Democratic uh, House or Senate, we wouldn't have bans that are as restrictive. But I think we really know this because all of all of these things like Dobbs, Casey, they all came from states, right? These don't come from the federal level down. They start in states and then they move their way up and through the courts. I just wanted to ask you, you spoke a little bit about Andrea's vision, um, but could you tell us a little bit about what you see as her greatest accomplishment or just in the continuum of great accomplishments? What's one that you would pick out and hold up as a jewel? Oh, well, Overall, one of the things that always inspired me about her, and let's say it, she would actually be fine with me saying this, as a white lady feminist of a certain generation, (laughs) I found Andrea to be really thoughtful and deliberative about how to be as inclusive of everyone as she paved the way and fought for abortion access, but thinking more broadly about what reproductive freedom meant to all of us. Now, look, I'm a lesbian. So my conversations around abortion are going to be different 
than other pregnant people or potentially pregnant people, right? What I found to be a, a, a real inspiration that I, I use in my own daily life is the way that she helps us think about reproductive freedom far um, more broadly than just abortion access, but of course, centering abortion access. So for example, let me tell you what I mean by that. The fact that she helped to secure reparations, and I mean like cash money, reparations for people who had been forcibly sterilized in California, really big deal. Mm -hmm. The fact that she uh, was advocating for birth justice, getting increased payment rates for birth doulas, uh, making sure that incarcerated pregnant people weren't shackled. I mean, all these other things, dealing with um, maternal mortality, really thinking about reproductive freedom and abortion access in a way that we all can be connected to it. And I and I, I heard uh, Kitty talking about just the, the communication skills and the messaging, but really the thoughtfulness about who is affected by a very tiny swath of this society, these elected officials who want to control our reproductive systems and really bringing us all together to figure out ways that we can be powerful and fight back and, and control our own reproductive bodies and have freedom. That That's the thing that, that really stands out for me. As somebody who came to this work, but I mean, I had abortions and I always was pro-choice, but it's, you know, when when things started going south in Texas in 2010, and I decided to travel around the country in a van with my dogs and do fundraisers and and then started doing meeting the people on the ground working. Unless you are so self-obsessed, if you open up like Andrea, the only reason, you know, the reason that Andrea can complete people's sentences is because she listens all the time. Right. So to listen and see the activists on the ground, I feel like every white lady in this movement needs to go out and be on the ground because if you're worth your salt, you're seeing who you need to uplift. Because if you can provide a platform to uplift those people, and that's what y'all, everybody does, NIRH does, it's it's what you did, Catherine, in your work and doing your work. It's what we do at Abortion Access Front. That's the ticket, right? Is getting communities activated and figuring out all of the ways that we can do that. And so I'm going to bring that same question that Moji asked Aisha to you, Kitty. What are some of Andrea's greatest examples? Well, you know, I think one of the things that um, we don't appreciate about people who've been active in this movement for so long is just how hard the work was uh, and continues to be. And, you know, we all worked really, really hard. I would tease people at the office that I would get there from Philadelphia before everybody woke up yet because they had been at the office until two and three and four in the morning and reaching deadlines and making sure people got their uh, phone calls returned. And I think one of the things that Andrea just always at this, she, her brain never stopped working or thinking about what the next step would be. But the second thing, and this to me is equally as important, is she was really courageous. She knew when to say no. Um, and that's a hard thing to do when you're in the world of politics, because every politician wants you to say yes all of the time. Uh, for me, it was around the Freedom of Choice Act uh, that uh, was pending in Congress, and it didn't include funding around Medicaid for uh, poor women, and it didn't include help for young women. And we said, nope, we're not going to support it. And everybody else said, okay, let's get what we can while we can. And I think uh, Andrea did the same around 
the Freedom of Choice Act in New York State. I can't exactly remember the original bill, but basically Governor Cuomo was going to reward all of the women's groups with a whole series of initiatives that would help women across the state, but forsake reproductive freedom. And Andrea said, nope, not on my watch. Uh, I'm going to say no. And that courage, while it resulted in a short-term loss for women, uh, resulted in the long-term gain for all of us and um, uh, included reproductive freedom, uh, not only by statute, but hopefully now by uh, state constitutional amendment. Thank you so much for saying that, because, I mean, just sitting in this moment, just in the, the present I'm feeling all of her energy around me. It's exactly what I feel that even as a board member, I don't know that we gave her the credit for the flowers that were due Mm -hmm. for how courageous and forward thinking and non-compromising she was. And, you know, even thinking back to like, she's known to be the leader that was the first affiliate of NABRAL to essentially defect. Right. And to went off and started the National Institute of, of Reproductive Health and kind of broke the NARAL mass out of the Federation. Sure, we, we know that now, you know, over a decade later. But when you really think about the why, what was she after? Well, she realized that it was time to disaffiliate from the national organization because they're doing a lot of political compromising right. in a way that wasn't actually serving the mission of making sure that everybody had access to abortion. And that's the legacy that she continues to leave behind at the National Institute of Reproductive Health. The entire body of work that she started building um, that is now the foundation of really the future of the impact that this organization will have is all about not compromising, about leaving nobody behind as we are moving uh, ballot measures, as we are working on legislation. And that is bold and it is courageous and it is not popular and it is not, there's not a political appetite most of the time because people want to, you know, oh, we'll give up some things just so we can get a little bit. And I admit that even as one of her friends and kind of, you know, big champions on her board in the work from that angle with her, it didn't hit me how much she really pushed the envelope and deserved to have all the flowers around that because not easy stuff, not easy stuff to sometimes be on the wrong side of your friends. And I want to just say too, I think for those who are listening, who think that New York has been this bastion of wonderfulness when it comes to abortion, the one thing that Andrea and NIRH did was identify there was 18 anti-abortion Democrats in our state house and NIRH were and Andrea worked tirelessly to make sure that New Yorkers knew that there was anti-abortion Democrats in our midst and did incredible campaigns. And most of those people are gone. Abortion was in the criminal code in New York yes. exactly. until 2019. I was going to say that's like Kitty brought that up and, and it's the Reproductive Health Act that like NIRH wrote, right, crafted that passed in 2019. And up until then, had it been in effect when Dobbs happened, we could be like all these other states trying to figure it out. Well, and I think that's what's really important, which is even in the best of states like New York and California, there are many, many things we can do to improve the ability of women to have access to reproductive health care. 
Um, but I sure wish there were a lot more states like New York uh, and California. Uh, and we have to really focus our attention in those places, because if we don't, however good uh, the media makes us sound, winning all these uh, state constitutional races and the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, et cetera, uh, there are still, you know, 15, 20 states in which abortion is banned, and we need to focus on that over the long term. I think that's right. And Aisha, you're tasked with carrying on how we find a new leader, being in this leadership, interim leadership role. I can't even articulate really how hard I, it seems and how wonderful, and I know you're up for the task, but talk to folks about what you're going to be looking for as you are in this search and what you plan on doing to sort of further what's happening and what NARH will be doing in this moment. Yeah, thank you for that. Now, I, I there will be a full search committee that gets buy-in from the partners and the staff and very much has its finger on the pulse of the, the future of the movement to make sure that whomever is selected is someone who will be the future of NIRH. I will offer, though, that one thing that comes to mind about what Andrea set us all up for. And I, I say it that way, you know, thinking that she is smiling down on us and me right now sitting in her seat, kind of chuckling because she really set us up here. What we need is we actually need someone who is bold, unapologetic about doing hard things, and perhaps even willing to do what Andrea did, which is say those tough, the tough parts out loud, which is going to create a little bit of friction because we can't have business as usual. We can't, we have to go beyond, for example, the Roe framework, because we know now that we need more. Right. The next leader of NIRH is going to be someone who has thick enough skin to carry an agenda that may not always be the most popular one. Also needs to be someone that has some real political sensibility, because while this is a policy fight and certainly now a legal battle continually, right, we're in we're going to be back in the Supreme Court, presumably, there's absolutely a political understanding that goes along with all of this. And if there's there's another thing that Andrea has kind of made a mark around that doesn't get the credit for is she was one of the first people who thought, hey. Why don't we actually go and talk to anti-abortion people and find out what they think? Why don't we poll some people and why don't we actually find out what they think and then figure out how to create messaging and conversations to bring more people into the fold? She had her finger on the pulse of how to have conversations, how to shift culture. And I believe that the next leader of the organization is also going to need to be as politically astute, but in a way that is small p politics and more connected to the humans and the humanity uh, around abortion access, reproductive freedom, and, and be able to just talk to folks and bring them along because we are still in the midst of a cultural shift and a big cultural conversation. So that's, that's what I think we need. Aisha, I really think that speaks to the work that she has done in destigmatizing the way we speak about abortion and making people feel a lot more comfortable screaming abortion out loud and letting people know that it is essential and that it is a community good. I want to ask both of you, how do we carry on Andrea Miller's legacy moving forward without her? We don't leave anybody behind and we don't compromise. The idea that we need to have, and I don't want to get into the weeds on policy, but the idea that we need to have lots of caveats and lots of provisions and lots of opt-outs just isn't true. We can have full and complete access to abortion 
It's been polled. We have really encouraging data that says so. From a political standpoint, we got to get rid of the people who are standing in our way and we have to go after what we want unapologetically. That's how we carry on Andrea Miller's legacy. What would you say, Kitty? Well, I would say uh, very much the same thing. That is, we all have a responsibility to work on this issue and not just for the next election or the next two elections, but for our lifetimes. And uh, this is not an issue that's going to turn around in by next year or the next presidential race. It's an issue that will be with us for probably 50 or 60 years until we build the political power to, in my view, uh, pass a new constitutional amendment that protects abortion, reproductive freedom, and a whole lot of other rights that this court wants to take away from us. So uh, it's a 50-year battle at a minimum, and everyone needs to do their part. And I can't say to anyone... What you need to do, that's a choice you need to make. And there's lots of ways to help and be political and work for organizations and raise money and write postcards or whatever it is. But you got to do something. I agree. Andrea would have wanted that. Andrea would have wanted that. And I also think, too, for those of us and those who are listening who, you know, you don't belong to an organization and maybe you don't even identify as an activist. The thing that helps move the needle politically is by you bringing your belief system that abortion is a moral good and that it's a community good and that you actually hold politicians accountable by saying that in your in the fiber of your being with your whole chest that you can say I support this and that whether or not you hold office depends on you actually helping not only beat back these terrible laws but further access and and celebrate it as such so Andrea, that is what we, Moji and I, and my folks at Abortion Access Front promise we're going to do. Kitty and Aisha, thank you for coming and sharing so much about Andrea's life and work. I can't think of better people to do it. And I'm so glad that a public that might not have known Andrea Miller before knows what a champ she is. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a wonderful conversation. I feel like our listeners are just so lucky to have learned about Andrea if they didn't know her before. If you want to follow Aisha's work at the National Institute, you can go to their website at nirhhealth.org and follow them on socials on Twitter at N-I-R-H-E-A-L-T-H. That's N-I-R-Health. And they're on Facebook as National Institute for Reproductive Health. You can find the work of Katherine Colbert at katherinecolbert.com or contact her at controllingwomenthebook.com. Also, if you really want to do something personal to support Andrea, and this is an easy one, give your pets an extra scratch. Andrea loves all the furry friends. Well, going from these amazing Wonder Women to the actual Wonder Woman, that's our show today. It's incredible. I mean, I don't know what else to say other than our next guest is fucking Wonder Woman. <laughs> Linda Carter is an actor, an activist, and a singer. And her new single, Rise Up, is an anthem to inspire folks to rise up and fight back. And it is out now. And not for nothing, yours truly made a cameo in the video for the song. So please welcome Wonder Woman. Hey, Linda. Hi, Linda. Hey. How are you? I mean, oh, we're great so now that we're talking to you. It feels like, 
This is like Christmas come early. Being able to talk to you and forgive the fangirling because it's probably going to happen. Oh, gosh. Me too. Your career has been so awesome. And I think (laughs) one of the things that I love so much about you is that you have a long history of fighting the power. You know, you were politically active in Hollywood your whole career, even back when there were consequences for speaking out and taking a stand. And I guess my first question to you is, How did you find the audacity and the strength to speak truth to power, knowing that it could hurt your career? What made you say, screw it, I'm doing it? I think it was growing up with a powerful mother. She always said, you should do what you want. You can make it, you can do it. She was of the era after World War II where they all went to work. And they were doing, they were working in factories and they were doing men's work. And then they came back and then they were put into the kitchen again. And I think that 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 cat was out of the bag. (laughs) It just wasn't going to ever be the same again. You know, they all came back from the war and they said, wait, wait a second. What's changed? Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so I always had this sense of I can do anything. I can be anything and I can do anything. And I was just, I knew that you sort of had to be a person unto yourself because no one was going to be there to help you. Mm -hmm. And my parents got divorced when I was very young. So they were all scattered and doing their own thing. And I knew no one was really going to be there to help me out. You know, my mother was there to help me in spirit, but there was no bones to help steer you through, really. I think that's really interesting to think about when those instances come, and I think everyone goes through it where you have to raise yourself at some point on some level, where you find the strength to do that really helps you, I think, grow your imagination even also. And when you don't have a choice, you sink or swim. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no place else to go. There was a movie with Richard Gere and Deborah Winger where he's playing a young infantryman or airman or something. Officer and a gentleman. Officer and gentleman, and he's doing push-ups in the mud. And he says, why don't you just quit? And he says, because I got no place else to go. Yep. That's kind of it. If you don't do it for yourself, it's not going to happen. So you got to get up, dust yourself off and get going. I feel like your activism, your activism as an actor has sort of expanded to not taken over into social media. You know, you are like seriously a clapback queen. And so could you talk to us like, (laughs) when did you first get the Twitter? Oh, wait, we're calling it X now. Whatever. When did you get the Twitter bug? And is it still your favorite social channel? I would say I've moved into Instagram quite a bit because Twitter's gotten weird. It's wild. Mm -hmm. I I still like it, but I kind of have my own thing and don't engage on the weirder stuff. But clapbacking is probably (laughs) what I enjoy most. I really get riled up about bullying. Just the idea of being pushed or watching it happen to someone else. And I think that I really hated it when I would see it in school or I would see it around and particularly with LGBT people or whatever I was growing up with where people were targeted. It really bothered some place inside of me that the bones of me, the breastbone inside of me would just get 
so angry about it. I really have to hold myself back and not just go. (laughs) Yeah. And my Hispanic temper just goes. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to watch myself. What kind of trolls do you get the most? Oh, the ones that make me laugh the most are, oh, what are you doing? You, you're you still on that old Wonder Woman thing, or you're still this, or your Wonder Woman isn't a gay icon, or, <laughs> you know, stuff like this, or the bullying, or the think they can use my platform to hate, mm-hmm. and I'm not tolerating it. I'll push back. I I think my biggest thing right now is on abortion. And uh, I'm so, so happy with Ohio. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. I'm so, so happy with Kentucky. We've been celebrating. But they put it in the Constitution. Well, and it's so exciting to watch it, to have people understand that the humanity around abortion. Finally, we can talk about it and we can talk about the humanity around it, why people need it. And I think we needed to get to that public space where it wasn't a dirty word and it was something that people could understand that you don't know someone's circumstance, so leave them the hell alone. Yeah. What really struck me, ladies, was it's not about abortion. What is it that they don't get? It's about the choice over our own bodies. We are not fixated on the abortion. We're trying to tell you it's my body. It's ours. It isn't yours. You cannot enslave our wombs. We're a reproductive rights organization, and we believe, like we were just talking about it, that a truly compassionate society values and supports all pregnancy outcomes, right? Like you just said, it's not just the abortion. It's really sort of being able to make choices and also provide services to help folks raise kids or support them in their choices. And you are a wise Latina woman. And (laughs) Mexico recently showed the U.S. like what it means to support women and pregnant people by decriminalizing abortion in their country. What are your thoughts on this scary, misogynistic hellscape that we are currently living in in the USA? Well, there's hope in that Ohio and Kentucky and Mm -hmm. Virginia. It's just shocking that governments for millennia have used all kinds of things to control and to silence. They started making these changes back in governments and religions to control women. And it just felt like the fear and the vulnerability of this control has been going on for so, so long. And it's ridiculous. It's just only in 1993 did they allow women to wear pants in the Senate. Allow. Because, oh my God, these draconian ideas of how to put controls on women that there were no controls on other people. It shows the fear of of a sort of power structure that came to their power with unearned power. You know, I think like when we watch how much they are trying to strip us of our power shows how little they have and how threatened they are by being found out. Sometimes I feel like it's like, oh, your daddy had the job and his daddy had the job before you and now you have it. And you're mad that somebody could do it better than you. That's not part of the lineage. There is something to be said about this. There are a lot of men that voted in the Ohio election to support the right to choose. 
all men past the 19th Amendment. Mm-hmm. So don't want to throw all men under the bus. And I don't. And I never will because I had a wonderful husband. I've got a wonderful son and father and all those men that support us. And I don't want to denigrate a single one of them. I do want to denigrate all the rest. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave those 20 out of the list and then the rest of them will just go in hard. The idea, you know, is it's like when someone says that God intended for me to be here. I'm thinking, well, yeah, God intended me to be here too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so shut up. Yep. And, and, and also, you know, I've reached a point in my life where I'm just tired of other people telling, I'm not asking anybody else. It's like we keep saying, if you don't want to have an abortion, don't. It's so incredibly frustrating. Okay. Okay. What? Can we talk Wonder Woman? Like We can talk Wonder Woman. You're a feminist icon, a queer icon, a human rights icon, not just as Wonder Woman, as Linda Carter, obviously. But like, when did you realize how much this one character meant to shaping the possibility of like what could be for young girls, for all people, but especially young girls? I think I knew more about the responsibility of playing Wonder Woman than the producers did, certainly. I read the comic books and I knew what my little heart felt to be able to play Wonder Woman. I mean, are you kidding me? It's like a dream to be able to play that because I was Wonder Woman when I was a little girl reading those comic books. I think I stopped reading them when they made her a a regular person, but (laughs) the chance to play that and the responsibility and who she was because she was going to be either your best friend or you wanted to be like her. And when they told me, oh, women are going to hate you, I said, what? What's up with that? Oh, yeah, because you're sexy and women are going to hate you. It's just this, you know, this was the 70s. We were together. We were united. Where were they living? I was living in the 70s. I think they must have been living in the 40s or something. The 1870s. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Where it was like the jealous other woman or something. Oh, my God. Like I was going to do hitherto Wonder Woman. Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) And that's the whole thing. And like when I think about Wonder Woman, you got to deal with in character, so many men behaving badly, like how fun to be able to like, to be able to do that. And so then I was thinking like, if you could don the suit and take on some of this current crop of horrible dudes, is there one specific that you would lasso up first? Well, (laughs) I can think of a few, but the current one would be Mike Johnson. Oh, yes. Good choice. (laughs) We have a segment at the beginning of the show called Johnson Watch, where we um, literally just report on his latest, (laughs) wildest. Not even latest. Sometimes just what he did last year and how wild it is. Yeah. (laughs) What's your favorite thing about Mike Johnson? Is that that's not a trick question. (laughs) (laughs) Are you casting a spell on him right now? I'm being him. Oh, gosh. Oh, Snidely Whiplash Johnson. Yes, I know. He He's our scariest person, too, because people don't know about him. When they said, what is your governing principles? He said the Bible. I just pick up the Bible and that's what it is. And it's like, well, we have a constitution, which is a second option for you to read and govern by. But I guess not. 
That was really strange. If you pick up the Bible, man, there's a lot of bad mojo in there. Yeah. Yeah. So much weirdness. So I don't know which thing, but the gay conversion and all that. Yeah. I don't know what happened to separation of church and state, you know, get him out. And as soon as possible. I know it felt like a ruse. It felt like Matt Gates wanted to get him all along. So they put up Jim Jordan and it was like, it can't be Jim Jordan. And then he slid under the radar Johnson in there. (laughs) And it was like, he's worse than Jim Jordan. How is this possible? I don't even know if Matt Gates is that smart, but. (laughs) I mean, there's also that. There's always that. I think most of it is people wanting to stay in office, except this Mike guy and his wife clearly are on the, I am God. I've been anointed. Yes. Yeah. I am God. I speak for God. And it is the hubris is incredible that people feel entitled to speak for God or to speak for me. And they're speaking (laughs) for me with uh, the abortion issue. They're trying to speak for me about God and they're trying to speak for me about the constitution. And, you know, it's not my America. It's not in keeping with my womanhood. It's not in keeping with my God. It's not in keeping with my America. I feel like for me also, just to interject, it's not what I want for myself. Mm Mm-hmm. I wanted to get to talking about your music. Yes. You've been writing music and performing for some time, and you have a new single out called Rise Up. Can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration for Rise Up and a little about the new record? Rise Up is an anthem that I wrote last year. It was really an anthem to democracy, and it was about rising up for democracy, rising up for what you believe in and trying to put it out there for everyone to rise up. If you are a volunteer and you're helping to feed the children or schools or whatever it is that you're involved in, we're starting a campaign that's going to be going all year for people to do their own take on the Wonder Woman spin and that they are rising up for this event or for this thing or for that thing and that they can post it on my page and they can, I'm rising up for this and I'm rising up for that. And I'm rising up for good things, for democracy. I'm voting. I'm rising up to vote. I'm rising up, you know, for choice. I'm rising up. Mm -hmm. And so it's rise up. Rise up. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Such a beautiful voice. I feel like rising up right now. Rise up. Oh, wow. So uh, I wrote an album. My daughter was writing and she was taking a turn from being a lawyer. She decided that she was going to do singing and songwriting. And she shifted from uh, working at Gibson Dunn and it's a law firm in Washington, D.C. And she just walked away and she just did her singing and songwriting full time. And she was just pumping them out and it was so good. And I thought, she said, mom, you just got to start writing again. Cause it was after my husband died. And she says, you got to put your things on paper, all of these things that you have inside of yourself. You got to just sit down and start putting them on paper about all these things that you've been championing all your life. You know, you've got to just write up and get out of your doldrums and go do it. So I did. And I put together this album that I'm going to be releasing this year. And and she's on the road, she's singing, and she's really doing great work. And she's a real feminist herself. You know how mother's always pushing the child 
oh, you could be great. You could be great. Well, this is my daughter. <laughs> Pushy the mom. <laughs> mom, you got to do this again. You got to go back and do this and do this. <laughs> so it's really, it's kind of the opposite. It's wonderful because we enjoy each other's company so much. And she's, you can't just give up. You got to keep going, mom. You've got great things to say and you got to keep going out there and doing it. I think that's so important. And I think you've been through really hard things in your life. You know, you, you, you lost your husband. You know, it's like those things are really hard. And and I love that you have found so much joy in music. Will you talk a little bit to the folks out there who might be needing somebody to give them a little bit of a pep talk and feeling a little bit of joy? Can you tell our listeners what it is about finding your joy that you think is so important for people to hear and to know? Well, I will say this, that you, people like yourselves, who are out there on the front lines, speaking up for the thoughts and the feelings of other people and women knowing that that you are in their corner. And when you speak up, when you use your voice for good and you use your voice to add to other voices, it becomes a cacophony. It becomes a point of power when you add your voice to other women's voices and you join in a chorus of voices. It becomes something else and you become a part of something greater than yourself. And join me, join you and become a part of something. And I think it's the idea of giving up part of yourself, giving to the energy of others and putting your energy and your thoughts together with others that will make the difference in the joy in your life. Yeah, I think that that is an amazing thought to go out on. Linda Carter, you are an inspiration, a hero, a multi-talent. We're so thrilled that you joined us on the podcast. Thank you right here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's great. <laughs> great to be with you. I hope we do it again. Oh, let's do it, please. Anytime. Did Wonder Woman just sing to me? I think she just sang to me. Oh, she sang to all of us. Are we fighting? <laughs> yes, Taylor. <laughs> You can listen to Linda Carter's single Rise Up in our show note and don't miss the music video to this amazing song. Follow her on social media at Real Linda Carter. She is a great ass follow. If you, She is the queen of the clapbacks for real. We weren't just kidding when we said it in the interview. That's our show. What? <laughs> it was a lot of show. Thank you so much to... Catherine and to Aisha for celebrating Andrew with us. Thank you to Chris Geidner for giving us and showing us the way that is happening with this crazy Mippy case. And thank you to Linda Carter. Wow, incredible. And thank you for listening. Oh my goodness. Like, subscribe, and show us some love with a five-star rating and stay connected on social media at Abortion Front. Let's make a difference and have some fun doing it you're looking for where you might fit in some abortion activism, we've got a five-part activist training series, Operation Save Abortion at operationsaveabortion.com. And while you're there, check out our cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. 
For anyone interested in learning more about how medication abortion pills work, Northern Indiana Atheists are hosting a virtual self-managed abortion safe and supported info share this Saturday, December 16th from 2 to 4 p.m. More info can be found on the activist calendar. And self-promotion live plug alert. If you're in the Twin Cities or if you're coming to the Twin Cities, I will be doing my annual year in review shows at the Parkway Theater December 30th and 31st. I will be ripping the whole year a new one and with some good news too. It's also my 40th anniversary of doing stand-up what? And so there'll be some special surprises and some really fun reminiscing. So get your tickets at parkwaytheater.com. Next week, Liz and I will be chronicling the best, worst, and weirdest of Bobo stories of 2023 with our steaming news dumpers, Alyssa and Molly. And I just want to say, as we round out 2023, we do this work solely with the support from you. So if you like the work of AAF and you see how hard we are fighting to make this world a better place, for abortion access and you like our podcast and feel like you're smarter and have gotten some good information and taken to the streets because of it, we're asking if you would please donate at aafront.org slash give AF. Your, your donations are tax deductible. And if you donate now until New Year's Eve, your donations will be matched. That's aafront.org slash give AF. Do it because you love us. Also, you can donate to our Patreon. You can really sustain this shit. You'll be supporting our great content. You'll get cool FBK exclusive merch and experiences. And all the pledges will support the pod and all of the great work we do at AAF. So if you want to give cash to the Patreon, you can just go to patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remy DeTournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. Finally, we leave you with Alex Jones, a man showing us his whole ass with his rejected ending to the Twilight series. Peter Nygaard is on trial right now, was having women have babies, his babies, so they could abort them at eight months, and then he could suck all their juices out and inject them into himself. A, a real vampire that literally takes the juices of his children, puts them in his body. We have a transcript of him saying that on TV. Who is this? A, a Peter Nygaard is one of the big buddies of Epstein and all them. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is poppin', we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.